I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of Trade Guys, we'll talk outbound investment screening, Made in America Week, and a Goa renewal. All that and more on Trade Guys. Good afternoon, Trade Guys. This is officially the warmest month on record. Hope you're both keeping cool. Bill, I know you managed to get a cold somehow in 100-degree weather, and you're still recording this episode, so you're nothing if not dedicated, and we appreciate it. We are like the Postal Service. Nothing stops us. This is trade, guys. Rain, sleet, snow, virus, <coughs> laryngitis. We don't have uniforms like the Postal Service. but I think we should think about that, it. But there's, there's always opportunity. You're right. And you see us both <laughs> in shorts and funny hats? I don't think so. Cannot think of a better use for the Schultz budget, personally. Oh. Okay, let's start with another twist in the United States outbound investment screening mechanism story. Uh, the Senate just approved a bipartisan proposal for a notification framework. The Outbound Investment Transparency Act, co-sponsored by Senate Finance Committee members Bob Casey and John Cornyn, would require notifications for investments in specific sectors to specific countries of concern. It was approved overwhelmingly by 91 to 6. So Trade Guys, can you tell us a little bit more about the content of the act? Well, this is an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, which is one of the few authorizing bills that almost always passes. Perhaps it always passes, but natural defense authorization tends to happen. And so what they've done is attach a relatively popular amendment to a must-pass or more likely to pass piece of legislation. So it means we may get something like this. We may not, because in this circumstance, the House has already passed its version of the NDAA without this provision. The Senate added the amendment, and now you have to either go back and pass it again in the House or have a conference or something so it won't get to the president's desk for some time now. But 91.6 is a very solid level of support for the amendment. Now, as we, Bill and I have both been concerned about the, the scope and the complexity of any regulation of outbound investment, and it looks to me like they've managed the scope fairly carefully. First, they've done, as you pointed out, notification only. And uh, that's probably a, a very good place to start. But the, the, the transactions that are required to be reported, think of a Venn diagram here. And there are, th there are three intersecting circles. The scope has to be uh, in a covered sector with a covered entity, that is the foreign firm is, enterprise is covered, and with a covered activity. So if you meet those three tests, covered sector, covered entity that the transaction is happening with, and covered activity, uh, then there is a requirement to report with various timings. Uh, as I understand it, the, whether it provides for the establishment of uh, enforcement authority for failure to notify, that is only for covered and, and not so-called, but not notified transactions. So they're trying to do a, a fairly straightforward job of getting firms to notify. Now, interestingly, also in terms of the scope of this, U.S. foreign investment is huge. Both we are, we are the largest recipient of foreign direct investment and we're the largest outbound investor. 
Our outbound investments total capital stock is over $6 trillion worldwide. But the four countries of concern are just tiny fractions of that. So if you just look at capital stocks, China is really the only one that's a factor. Where you both have, China has about $126 billion worth of US direct investment in its capital stocks. And the flows average over the past five years of about $18 billion a year. The rest of the list, Russia has stocks of about $9 billion, but negative flows past five-year average of minus $200 million a year. So there it shows a sort of a de-investment in Russia by American firms. And then you just chalk, chalk up zeros for North Korea and Iran. There's no flows and no stocks. So for practical purposes, this is a China bill. And I think it's it's wise to be pertinent of that. But this, is, this looks like a bill that's going to help the administration and the people who implement the bill learn how you actually track foreign investment, which is not the easiest thing in the world. Bill, this looks a lot like national security because it has a similarity with export controls, both in the definitions and the kinds of activities. So given your export control uh, knowledge, wh what do you think? Well, my immediate reaction to it was it's sort of the incredible shrinking bill. This started out five years ago as a proposal, a committee like CFIUS uh, the Inbound Investment Committee to actually give the president or the relevant chairman, well, ultimately the president, the authority to reject specific investments. Every successive iteration of the bill has been scaled back. And so now it's a pale imitation of its former self. As Scott said, it's reporting only. The thing that surprised me a little bit about it was that it's not only reported only, it really is limited to the specific, I think, six sectors that are identified uh, in the bill, which I was anticipating all along that somewhere along the line, somebody would put in a line that says, you know, and anything else that the secretary thinks ought to be on the list. And reading through the text the other day, doesn't look like that's there. So it, it really is a limitation in the sense that it's confined only to a relatively narrow uh, set of transactions. I think that's going to be somewhat reassuring to the business community, although nonetheless, it's going to have a chilling effect on investment because there's a lot of uncertainties about the other issues of the covered entities and, and covered transactions. And the secretary does have authority to flesh out those terms in uh, subsequent regulation. So it's going to take a while uh, before people understand exactly how it will work. Of course, as Scott said, it's going to take a while before it becomes law anyway, because the bill is going to conference. The Senate passed the bill on um, July 26th in the evening and in the process substituted their language for the House's language and requested a conference. So it'll be resolved there. The problem will be there, not this issue, because I think the House will accept it. It will be, there's a number of the other very controversial issues the House put in mm -hmm. that relate to um, uh, abortion, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the, in the military that caused the bill for the first time in decades uh, in the House to pass on a party line vote or virtually party line vote that usually passes by an overwhelming bipartisan consensus and did not do that this time. And so the conference is going to be a difficult one, not so much because of this, but because of the other issues. So it may take a while uh, for it to get to the president. And meanwhile, the latest news as of July 27th is that the administration finally is going to issue its executive order on the same subject by uh, reportedly by August 8th. So stay tuned. Uh, this will be showing up maybe a week after you're hearing this podcast. The rumor is that it will be mostly notification, but it will go beyond the Senate provision in that it will flat out prohibit certain transactions in the AI, quantum, and semiconductor space. So we'll have to wait and see exactly how that 
works and how it is different from uh, from what the Senate does. But it does seem likely that one way or another that we're going to be faced with this kind of provision probably starting next year, which is when the executive order is supposed to take effect. And by the time they finish the defense bill, it'll probably be next year anyway. So either way, this is going to be a 2024 issue. Yeah, it looks to me like the Senate did a helpful job of constraining the authority to things that, that were real issues. There are six covered sectors, semiconductors and microelectronics, particularly advanced semiconductors, artificial intelligence. Third is quantum information science and technology. Fourth is hypersonics. Fifth is the satellite-based communications. And sixth is networked laser scanning system, which are dual-use products. And it's not all activity within those sectors. It's only covered activity with covered entities. That's a helpful constraint. Also, there may be some trade guys, listeners on the Senate staff, because it's the Secretary of the Treasury who will minister the program, which which is, was our recommendation to start with. Uh, our influence is everywhere. Yes, we'll, 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 we'll presume so. Uh, it's uh, like my influence over over television sports. So in any case, uh, but that, that's where we stand. And Bill's right. This is going to play out over a longer term. It's uh, contained now. It may get bigger. We'll have to watch it. And this, as I said, is a pale imitation of what it could have been. So I'm not frothing anymore. I still think it's a mistake, but it's a small mistake compared to a very large mistake. Well, I don't think it's the last step in the journey. So the frothing may come back, Bill. As the size of the so, error grows. Yes, that's right. Let's follow this up with a discussion on trade in the midst of Made in America Week, which President Biden declared and highlighted some of his administration's biggest spending packages, the usual suspects, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law the Chips and Science Act. And meanwhile, Ambassador Tai is speaking to our trade partners like EU representatives about areas of trade policy that are proving fractious. So trade guys, to get a bird's eye view conversation going on the topic and admittedly maybe trigger a few rants from the two of you, how does the Biden administration's Made in America philosophy play out during our trade negotiations? Well, I would just observe, having been around this debate for over 20 years, when it comes to manufacturing and where stuff is made, there's so much, it's such a large enterprise collectively, and there's so many ways to look at the data that anybody can construct whatever narrative they want to construct. So let me start with the observation that U.S. manufacturing output is a big chunk of the economy. It's like $3 trillion a year or so in GDP. And there's a trillion and a half dollars of manufacturing exports as well. So it's a big chunk of the economy. It, it employs 13 million workers. It's the foreign capital stock in manufacturing is something like 2.3 or $2.4 trillion. So there's a massive amount of activity in the sector. Uh, so you, if you want to tell a good news story about manufacturing, it's there to be told about the advancements that are that are made at the, at the sharp end of the stick of technology. It's all advanced manufacturing is an American product. It can be demonstrated lots of different ways. We're at the leading edge of things like machine tools and the interface between the person and the machine. So there's, there's a lot of things you can point to. But you look at the other side, if you want to say manufacturing is going is disappearing in America, there are numbers that support that because, because of productivity gains. Uh, the, the GDP contribution of manufacturing continues to rise, but the productivity gains mean fewer people are needed to make 
each additional dollar of output uh, of manufactured goods. And so there's roughly a 60 or 70 year secular decline in employment in the manufacturing sector. Uh, so there, there's, there, there are many ways that the blind, the blind advocates can, can look at the, uh, at the elephant that is manufacturing in America. And uh, depending on which part of the elephant your blind advocate is feeling, they'll come up with a different interpretation. That's a good way to put it, because <clears throat> I think my primitive non-database bottom line is that over that 60, 70 year period, we're making more stuff with fewer workers. Manufacturing hasn't declined in the sense that we're not making stuff, but the manufacturing job base <clears throat> has shrunk considerably over that period of time. The administration very clearly has a goal to bring that back and bring it back, hopefully, with union jobs as well. That's a commendable goal. I think one of the problems that they're not dealing with that we've alluded to in the past is we don't have enough workers to fill the jobs. And that's an ongoing problem. We still have now, I think, uh, twice as many jobs unfilled as there are unemployed people. And so, uh, and that's right now, if we're going to create hundreds of thousands of new jobs by making it in America, you end up inevitably asking the question, where are those workers going to come from? We are now facing population decline. So what we need is an immigration policy that, frankly, allow more people into the, into the country and not just high-end PhD engineers and scientists. I mean, those are welcome, but you know, we need more construction workers. We need more plumbers. We need more electricians. We need more healthcare workers. We need more teachers. Um, and we don't have people out there that are ready, willing, and able to take those jobs. And this is a debate that we will have down the road. It's nice that the administration is creating all the jobs, but what they're hearing directly from employers is it's nice, but we can't find any people to fill them. And that's what I think needs to be, the Congress in particular needs to turn to because they're the ones that we haven't had an immigra a substantial immigration reform since the 80s, as I recall, uh, which is it's way overdue. And we are creating the need to do that more urgently. Um, it's also uh, worth saying that make it in America is a policy that probably goes over well in America. It doesn't go over very well with our foreign colleagues some of whom are guilty of doing exactly the same thing, of making it in their country. But uh, they routinely object to anything we do that has domestic procurement requirements attached to it. The Europeans have been particularly uh, <clears throat> strong in those objections, and it makes reaching agreement with them on a lot of other things much more complicated, as we can see in the Green Steel Agreement and some other negotiations. You know, the U.S. is pursuing policies that are designed to maintain employment here, and the other countries are not really interested in agreeing to things that will maintain employment here at their expense. So it gets in the way of our ability to resolve some outstanding trade issues. Yeah, Thibault, I didn't mean to gloss over your question about the uh, the comments from Europe, but Europeans having concerns with American trade policy, I think only happens on days ending in Y. So <laughs> there's plenty of concerns that go both ways. There's there are important talks. Bill mentioned the ones that are related to industrial production of, of things like steel and and climate. Those are important and and will be standard setting. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot a lot of de debates that go on that are really tied not to trade policy per se, but to the fundamental competitiveness of the economies. And European industrial competitiveness is a harder and harder 
nut to crack for their for all their point to point competitors. So it's, it's not, I just want to suggest that while we always have trade disputes, this wasn't this one may not be just about trade, about climate, but it's also about the fundamental competitors of the economies. Right. Well, as an immigrant, I fully agree with Bill's immigration comments. And Scott, as a European, I fully disagree with your comments on Europeans. But I guess we'll just leave it at that. I wanted to close out this episode by a discussion on AGOA renewal. USTR held its annual AGOA eligibility review hearing early this week with witnesses from businesses and African government official representatives. During Catherine Tai's recent visit to Africa last week, she noted that Congress would ultimately decide Ago's future, but that her office was partnering robustly with lawmakers. So in light of all this, Bill and Scott, could you tell us a little more about the current state of play for a potential Ago renewal? Well, let me just say that the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act, which is uh, acronym is AGOA, has had broad-based bipartisan support since its inception. There's a strong pan-African consciousness in America, and the desire to reach out and provide some economic preferences to help Africa grow is something that is broadly supported among the Amer- American people and their elected officials. So that said... AGOA has not done what we many of us would have liked it to do. It's not been as as dramatic an assist in helping Africa grow. And I think that's because at a fundamental level, all preference programs are about 50 years old in terms of their ideas. And at this point, frankly, somewhat obsolete. So I look at the essence, the Rosetta Stone of preference programs was the 1974 Trade Act which expanded GSP and helped create some of these preference programs. But it was done in an era where most of the focus on preferences was in the the apparel sector. This was also, not coincidentally, a time when nation-by-nation import quotas were imposed on American apparel imports. And at that point, a preference that got you space in those quotas was something that was real, and it created a lot of jobs. And it was because quotas were quite stiff, the tariffs were high, and getting any kind of preference could make a big difference in your competitiveness, being able to supply this this big consumer market. Well, we are 30 years now past the expiration of the multi-fiber agreement, which basically eliminated the quota system worldwide. And yet that was what made all these preference programs cook, really, when you get down to it. I think our disappointment that that AGOA hasn't done more is related directly to the fact that the quotas were gone by the time AGOA came into force. And so it's never really had the, the margin of preference that would have helped African apparel companies get involved in, in the clothing business in a meaningful way. So now for me, because it's, that was 30 years ago that the multi-fiber agreement expired. We have a failure of imagination. For me, it's like, look, Africa is the world's young people. That's where the world's young people are. And if I were an American entrepreneur, what would I want most to uh, have all those young people doing? Well, I'd like them to have an, have an Apple iPhone. I'd like them to want to buy Nike sneakers. I'd want to have them get those Nike sneakers through Amazon Prime. I'd want American enterprise to succeed with those young Africans in a way it has with, with young people all over the world. That's the success of American enterprises outside their home market. So what do you have to do to do that? Well, it's probably not a Goa. It's probably something more than a Goa. If you look at you look at what, to, what it takes to develop, you start with power, and then you get affordable food and housing, and then faster economic growth, all of which have a trade component. And you start to work a trade policy 
that makes those young Africans richer. So, uh, so I would I would like some serious imagination. Take advantage of the political support that AGOA has always had, and make it something that really helps. So I have a somewhat different view. All those young Africans you're talking about are poor. They can't afford Apple. I, you know, they can't afford Apple iPhones. They nor could Chinese thirty years ago. So yes, but that was thirty years ago. How do they get from one place to another? Uh, a lot of it has to do with pursuing domestic economic policies um, that are growth promoting. And I've always felt the, the biggest thing that holds Africa back is government corruption, which I think is still a, a major problem. But within AGOA, the problem that we've had over the years is, you know, there's widespread support for it in, in, in theory. But when it comes down to making concessions that will inconvenience somebody in the United States, People get reluctant. <laughs> we don't have apparel quotas anymore, but there are a lot of high tariffs yes. in, in the apparel sector and in footwear in particular. And the high tariffs are there because of uh, insistence by the remaining domestic producers that they, rem- that they stay on. If you wanted to give a boost to developing countries, you would get rid of those tariffs because these are sectors where these, these countries, including African countries, well, they're not the only ones are competitive or can be competitive if they didn't have to deal with them. The other problem that the various African representatives spoke to in recent economic conference that was held where Ambassador Tai spoke, well, actually, she didn't speak, where other representatives spoke, was the various uh, so-called graduation requirements that AGOA includes. You know, your membership in AGOA is based in part on per capita gross national income. So in other words, as long as you're poor and you stay poor, you can qualify for a GOA. When you aren't poor anymore, you lose the benefit. And what that leads to, and as the African representatives pointed out, is countries are moving up the income scale. They're getting richer, not rich, but richer. And then they cross the line at which they're no longer eligible for GOA. And then they fall back down to poor again. We need to have, I think, better criteria for keeping people in longer and be less concerned about making sure that we are helping only the poorest countries. But let's try to produce policies that will enable people to move up the value-added chain in a host of sectors rather than cutting them off just at the point where they become viable. Yeah, the economists often call those welfare cliffs. And they happen in a lot of public policy areas. They certainly happen in trade policy. One way to find ground between Bill and I might be to suggest that what Africa is working the hardest on now is eliminating the, the trade barriers between African countries rather than barriers to export to the United States. I think that's where a lot of the barriers are. I think there's a tremendous amount of upside in eliminating the intra-Africa barriers to trade. The question I have for the AGOA proponents is, so what's our plan? What are we doing to help? How can we help them do what they want to do anyway and is good for growth and is good for their own economies? And that's we, we tend to be silent on that. So, Part of the answer to that is infrastructure. One of the reasons that intra-African trade is not at, at, the le- at the level it should be or could be is because they don't have the roads, the transportation, the airports, the means of getting stuff from country to country within Africa. And they have customs border procedures that in many cases are more cumbersome than they need to be. The East African Customs Union is a is a good step forward on the latter point. And hopefully the uh, African Comprehensive Trade Agreement, the AFCFTA, which now includes, I think, all but one African nation, will make some progress on getting rid of a lot of the barriers between African countries when it comes to goods and services uh, uh, transiting. Oh, thanks for the overview, trade guys. We'll see how it goes. 
Uh, but in the meantime, Bill, I hope you get better. Scott, keep on keeping on, I guess. I'll try not to be the one that's sick next week, but that's all right. <laughs> I'm fading fast, but I, I do want to add on a Goa. One of the frustrations of a Goa has been that this is something that everybody's for, but they never get around to passing it. It's a little bit like yeah. GSP. Uh, nobody's against GSP either. It's now been expired for two and a half years, coming on three years at the end of, at the end of 2023. It's just, it's really criminal that Congress can't get its act together to do these things where there is widespread support. Everybody agrees this needs to be done, but when, when it comes time it, to do it, uh, nobody's around to make the deals. So your take is that they're going to let it expire in 2025? My take is that despite movement to get it reenacted early, and the logic of which is if you want to encourage investment in the region, investors want to know that there's some certainty in these economies. And, uh, you know, a 10 or 15 year AGOA renewal would provide some certainty. And the sooner you can do that, the better. That's the rationale. And I think it's, it's an ironclad way of thinking about it. But if the past is any precedent, if we're lucky, this will get this will get enacted into law the week before it expires in 2025. We ought to be able to do better than that, but we haven't been able to do it so far. So our final take is that Congress needs to get its act together. We specialize in original ideas here, the trade guys. Yeah, I've never heard that before. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> if we were in charge, things would be different. Hey, <laughs> what are you going to say? <laughs> well, see you next week, trade guys. Thanks, Tipo. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.